0: This morning we start a new series of sermons and, and the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll start reading in verse 1 and read down through verse 12. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we find Matthew recording these words. He says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I don't know, for those of you who are Netflix fans, subscribers, Got anybody in in the room this morning, maybe love a little Ben's watching on Netflix, Um, but just this weekend, Netflix released a new series for those who enjoy Ben's watching, you can go and find it there, it's on Netflix, it's called, uh, it's an adaptation of the series of books written by Lemony Snicket and his series of unfortunate events. Uh, Some of you may not be familiar with Mr. Snicket or his series of unfortunate events, I'm deeply familiar. One of the things that we have been very grateful about in the lives of uh, one of our children, there's a, they're just a, he's a voracious reader. He loves to read anything he can get his hands on. Right? And So he's been reading through the series of Mr. Snicket's Unfortunate Events for some time now. And so he was thrilled to see that Netflix had released this adaptation, this series of television episodes based on those books. And so we began to watch some of the series this last week. One of those things I try and not let my kids do is binge watch things. Don't know that's quite healthy for them in the developmental process, but we began to try and pace them through this series of episodes that are being released there on Netflix. The first several books have been released and and so we've watched a couple of those episodes and we're waiting for, uh, obviously anxiously, for the future release of further episodes to come and so but one of the things about the 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 enjoyment of reading and perhaps even television shows or movies uh, is, is, is the fact that you and I we respond to those because we love stories don't we we love to open pages of a book or we love to fix our eyes upon a screen and we love to be captivated by good stories Right, every culture has been that way, and it, it, every co- including this one. And so from campfire settings, those of you who love to go out into the woods and sit around a campfire and tell stories, whether they be about ghosts or not, or if you enjoy maybe sitting in a coffee shop and exchanging good stories, or whether it be a, a, the bestseller list of the New York Times or the box office blockbusters that were released last year, we love good stories. Right? One of the evidences of that in our culture is the fact that of the 720 films, 720 that were released in the United States in 2016. Those 720 films grossed in profit a total of $10,572,026,165. That's a lot of money to sit and watch stories unfold for us on the screen. We're fascinated by them. We enjoy them. They entertain us. Right? But they do more than entertain us and fascinate us. They also shape us. Stories have a shaping power in our lives. Anyone who's ever taken an English literature class, right? Anybody ever taken English lit in college? Hey, you've taken an English lit class. You recognize that the great works of literature, whether they be from the past or in the present, are written to do more than just kind of spin a tale and keep you captivated in their pages. But they're written to shape the way that you think to shape how you view life, how you see life. They're written to change the way that you think about who you are, about who other people are, even at times about who God is and what our responsibilities to Him are. They shape our social norms, our moral norms, our theological norms. Stories don't just entertain us, they shape us. And stories shape the way that we think about the good life. A life that's fulfilling. A life that is satisfying. And the Bible's a story... The Bible is a story. If you don't know that, it is. From Genesis to Revelation, it's one big story that's being told about human reality. But the difference between the Bible and every other great work of literature that is a story, the Bible is shaping our lives in the same way that all these other works of literature and all these other stories are shaping our lives. But the difference between them is that while all these other things, whether they be fiction or fact... Right? They are stories about just this life, whereas the Bible' is a story about all of human history, all from beginning to the end, and it's the true story of the world. It's the true story of the world. And listen, let me just, maybe some of you never heard a pastor say it this way before, but listen, I am only interested in the story of Christianity to the degree that it is true. That's it. I'm not interested in the story of Christianity because it works for me because quite honestly, sometimes it doesn't. I'm not interested in the story of Christianity because of it, it promises to bring great change in my life because honestly, there are days in which I look in the mirror and there are areas of my life in which I wish there was much more rapid change than I've seen. So I'm not interested in the story of Christianity because it makes me feel good about myself or because it changes me. I'm interested in the story of Christianity because it's the true story of the world. And listen, if somebody could come along and disprove just a handful of things, I would shut the Bible and never open it again. But I've yet to see an argument that has persuaded me to to disbelieve the, the reporting in the Bible. So as a Christian, I believe the Bible is true, the true story of the world. And The Bible tells a story from beginning to end. It starts in the book of Genesis where we find the story of the Bible beginning to unfold of a good God who made a good world and at the pinnacle of all of his creation, he created a men and women and he placed them in a garden and asked them to trust him. To believe in Him. And yet these men and women who were shaped and made in God's image. They chose to look at God and distrust Him. And want to be their own gods. To determine what good and evil was for themselves. And eventually in their rebellion they turned God's good world bad. So everything that God made good they began to erode and corrupt. However, from the very first instance of human sin that enters into the world in that big story of the Bible, God promises that there would be one who would come and undo it all. He would come and restore and renew everything. There would be someone who would come that would one day undo all the evil that we have done and make all the sad things in this world come untrue. He would turn it all back and renew every ounce of it. And as the story unfolds, God continues to give men and women the opportunity to do the right thing. And they continue to make the same rebellious and self-destructive choices. And so God moves on from individuals and He moves to a people, Israel. A nation that would be a light among the nations whom He would choose and redeem. And so the story continues to unfold and God raises up this nation to be a light unto the nations. To show the world who God is and how to live in relationship to Him. And so God raises up, He appoints priests in that nation who would be the go-betweens between God and the, and the people. And upon their request, God raises up kings for them to rule over them. But many of the kings in the Old Testament they led people further away from God rather than toward Him. And they caused people to, to spiral into deeper sin rather than sanctification and growing in godly character and behavior. And so God raises up prophets and he sends to the people to call the people to repentance. But the prophets also not only called the people to repentance and obedience to God, but they also spoke of a future king who would come. This future king who would come and he would rule in all justice and all righteousness. And he would begin to undo everything, all the evil that had been done, and make all the sad things come untrue. And this future king would not only be the king of Israel, but he would be the king of all creation. And so the people waited. And the Old Testament closes in Malachi and then there's a 400 year period of silence in which God is not revealing. God is not raising up prophets to come and speak to his people. And that silence is broken in the first stroke of Matthew's pen in Matthew chapter 1 as it records the birth of this long awaited king who would come. And his name would be called Jesus. Jesus. And then in Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men come looking for Jesus, who do they come looking for? They come looking for he who has been born king of the Jews. That's who they're looking for. They're looking for a king, not just a teacher, not just another prophet, looking for a king, one who would rule not only over Israel but over all creation. In chapter 3, you get this dude named John who shows up wearing clothes made out of camels and eating bugs dipped in honey, right? Interesting wardrobe and a- appetites, but John shows up and he begins to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in other words God's rule and reign is broken into human history so turn from ruling over your own lives and come under God's good and gracious rule Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the time chapter 3 closes, Jesus shows up at the Jordan River. John takes him down, baptizes him in the river. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. The Father with a billowing voice out of the heavens says, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is swept off into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And after he puts Satan in his place on three separate occasions Jesus begins his public ministry by saying the same thing John said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand the king is in your midst return away from ruling your own lives and come under my good and gracious sovereign and saving righteous and redemptive rule and then Jesus begins to heal people and cast out demons in other words, Jesus begins to do all the things that this, old, that this king and the old, this ruler in the Old Testament, the Messiah of the Old Testament, was prophesied to do. He begins to take crippled hands and make them right, broken hearts and heal them. Those who were on the fringes of society because of their diseases or the demons that oppressed them were now brought in to Jesus and he gives them healing and hope. And so the story unfolds for us and then that brings us to Matthew chapters 5 to 7 where Jesus begins to teach and he begins to instruct and he begins to show us what life looks like. He begins to tell us the story of what life looks like under God's good and gracious rule. It's an amazing story. It's the true story of the world. And I'm so persuaded this is true that I'm willing to bet my life on it. And when Jesus shows up and he begins to teach about the kingdom of God, he's not talking about a place or politics. (laughs) It's not geography or a particular political party. He's talking about his rule in human history over the hearts of men and women. And this is what he says. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. And over the, off and on, okay, over the next 16 weeks, off and on for 16 weeks this winter and spring at Redeemer, we're going to be unpacking what Jesus says, his vision of the good life from Matthew 5 to 7. His story about who we are, who God is, and how to live in relationship to him. And so there's two just broad sweeping things I want to share with you this morning about that. Kind of set the stage and lay some groundwork, some foundation for where we're headed in this series. And the first one is this. When Jesus speaks about the good life, he speaks about the good life as being upside down kind of living. The good life is upside down. See, when, when, every, when every ruler or king or every kingdom or rule comes into existence, right, every administration takes over, they always have a pattern of values, right, that they try and instill and install. This is true in all walks of life. Listen, whenever a new CEO comes into your company and your company has been struggling with profit and the CEO comes in, he says, we're going to create a new culture here in order to advance our product and in order to grow our profits, and so they begin to instill changes in how things operate, new values within the company. It happens in companies, it happens in schools. There's a school district here not too far from where we are that a new superintendent came into. Uh, almost two years ago, and he began to bring a new vision for what education looked like within that district. And as a result, many of the teachers who had kind of been there and just kind of gone through the motions for a number of years were pushed out and new teachers were brought in who bought into this new vision and the new values the superintendent was, was espousing. It happens in education. It happens in corporations. It happens in, with sports teams, Right? My beloved LSU Tigers, this last year. It's a very difficult year, <laughs> right? They get, didn't get off to a very good start. All these expectations that we're gonna blow the roof off and contend for a national title, and four games in, they're two and two. And they fire their coach. And they raise up an interim from within who has now been installed as the head coach, but he's brought a new system, right? When coaches turn over, one coach had a particular philosophy about conditioning and strength training. This coach has a new one. He begins to instill it. It happens all over the place. And when Jesus shows up as this great king to rule all creation, he brings with him a new pattern of living, a new set of values. And he begins to unfold those forces in the Sermon on the Mount. And they are completely upside down with the values of not only this culture, but every culture that has ever existed. A couple of examples. A couple of examples. In the Beatitudes, Jesus speaks about blessing coming to those who are impoverished. He speaks about blessing coming to those who are meek, blessing coming to those who are mourning. But listen, in every other culture, those who are blessed, those who are content, the good life is lived by those who are powerful and wealthy, isn't it? Not those who are weak and poor. In every other culture, the right side up, people who are blessed and who are happy are those individuals who are always celebrating but never grieving and mourning. In every other culture, the right side up perspective are those who are kind of a little bit too sure of themselves rather than those who are meek and gentle. See, Jesus, the perspective that Jesus brings to us with regards to God's kingdom rule in our lives is absolutely upside down to every other culture that has ever existed, including our own. And he begins to teach us these things, this kind of upside down living. And we could talk about all kinds of generalities this morning, but I want to talk about two ways in which Jesus, this culture that Jesus is instilling for his His people, those who come under his lordship, is absolutely counterintuitive, countercultural, and upside down in this culture. There's two ways. The first one is, there's many more, but there's at least these two. And the first one is this, is that in a consumeristic culture, contentment, simplicity, and generosity are absolutely upside down. They are not right side up, they are upside down in a consumeristic culture. Listen, so many social commentators Scholars, professors have noted that this particular culture in the Western world, in the era in which we live, one of its marks, hallmarks and characteristics is that of radical consumerism. Radical consumerism. And consumerism has a story that it's telling about what the good life looks like. Right? Just like every other story, it's, it's shaping us to believe certain things. And consumerism consumerism is telling you and I we are what we buy we are what we buy the brands that we buy the places that we shop it's telling us this story about the good life about, about listen HGTV has a version of the good life for you do you know that? Like whenever you, you turn on HGTV and you see all these like rehab addict and flipper flop and, 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 and what's the one with the folks in Waco? What? Fixer Upper. Yeah. All these shows, right? I'm a little out of touch maybe. All these shows on HGTV, right? They have a vision for you. Like if you're, if you're, you have a cool color palette in your living room with grays and sliding barn doors, Right? then that's the good life. It's got a vision of the good life and it's all based upon how your home is decorated and what it looks like. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with having some knickknacks here and having good design in your home. Nothing wrong with that. But it's selling you a vision of what the good life is. It has a vision for you of, of what satisfaction and fulfillment will look like if everything is in its proper place. Now listen, those of you who have kids, you know. You know. That, is, that, cannot, that, can be not, that can't be the good life Right, because kids don't leave things where they belong and they write on walls you have to go and paint back over right it, but it, but HGTV has a vision of the good life that it's trying to sell you so does amazon.com right you're logged on to amazon.com and you're kind of searching for stuff and you're kind of perusing I, I was looking for a running watch the other day right one that maybe had a little like GPS could track how far I went I don't have to strap a phone to my arm anymore or tell me how far I've gone so I was, gonna, I was looking for a running watch so, I'm on Amazon.com and there's all these running watches from like 50 bucks to a thousand bucks on Amazon.com. And as I'm perusing through all the running watches, I'm looking at all of them. And in my mind, I'm going, man, I can, if I got that watch, I would just instantly drop 25 pounds. <laughs> and, I, and I could run, right? Two minutes, my, my pace per mile would drop by two minutes could run so much faster. Why? Because what, what's been marketed to you is a particular identity. This is, this is who you are. This is who you, you can see yourself as that kind of person who has a cool color palette in their living room and an awesome running watch and drops 25 pounds in two weeks. Right? It's being, they're being told, this is who you are. Fashion designers have a vision of the good life for you. Listen, in a consumeristic, we live in a very consumer-driven culture. And in a consumeristic culture, there is nothing more powerful than perception. Your perception of yourself and others' perception of you. Because listen, some of us, this is, so, this is like the water that we swim in, right? So you, go, you ask a fish, what's water? And the fish is going to be like, I don't know because they swim in it all day, every day. And so some of us don't even realize how influenced by the story that consumerism is telling us, we don't realize how much we've been influenced by it. Because listen, some of you, whenever you shop for something, you shop for tools, right? And you walk through the aisles of Home Depot and you go, I'm not a Ryobi guy. I'm I'm a yellow and black DeWalt guy, right? That's me, that's my identity. Right? Our identity becomes so wrapped up in the things that we buy and the branding and the marketing. Right? Some, of you, some of you ladies, you're like, listen, I, I'm not one of those shabby kind of people who shop at bargain stores. Only boutiques for me. And on the flip side, some of you ladies are like, I'm not the snobby, snotty kind of lady who just only shops at boutique stores. Give me the bargain bin. Right? Because there's a certain identity wrapped up with how you see yourself. And how others perceive you. There's nothing more powerful than perception. And consumerism is a little bit rigged. In fact, it's quite a bit rigged because what it promises you is joy and fulfillment, but what it gives you is nothing but worry and anxiety because you never really know who you are or how other people see you. And the most powerful driving force is perception and into a consumeristic culture. Listen, Jesus says at least three things in this sermon that are, this is all right side up in our minds. Jesus says three things in the sermon that turn it on its head, and his way of thinking is absolutely upside down. He says three things. He says, do not worry. Be content. He says, live simply. And he talks about when you fast. And he says, be generous. He says, when you give. Three things. In 625, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not worry about what you will wear, what you will eat or what you will drink. For the Gentiles, those who are outside of covenant relationship with God, go chasing after these things. But your heavenly Father knows what you need and he will provide it. So don't worry. Don't live riddled with anxiety, Jesus says but rather live with a sense of contentment knowing that God knows what you need. Whether it's a new paint job in your living room, a new watch on your wrist, or new shoes on your feet. He knows what your needs are. That's totally counterintuitive in a consumer culture. In addition, when Jesus says, live simply. Listen, Jesus says, when you fast in Matthew chapter 6. He doesn't say if you fast. If you decide to fast, but Jesus says, when you fast, when you say no to some things that are good, to say yes to some things that are better, this is how you should do it. He, he, he assumes that there is a sense in which we are living simply saying no to some things to say yes to others. We might fast from particular from food. We might fast from technology. We might fast from shoes or guns or fishing poles or depth finders or boats or tools or any other thing that we might say no to. To say yes to something else, to live simply. And whenever Jesus says, when you give, in Matthew chapter 6, he doesn't say if you give, but when you give. Don't let your one hand know what the other hand is doing. In other words, don't make a big show out of it, but he says, when you give. He says, be generous. Be generous. And generosity, simplicity, and contentment are totally counterintuitive in a consumeristic culture. It's upside down. And at certain points over these next, off and on over the next 16 weeks, we'll be taking a look at some of these things in greater detail with more clarity. But Jesus' teaching is absolutely upside down. You see, the reason that some of of us in this room right now that we are not content, we do not live simply, and we are not very generous. It's not because we don't think those things are a good idea. When you hear somebody talk about it on a Sunday morning, you're like, yes! But then you walk out of here. And and and, and researchers say that, that, that we're exposed to thousands and thousands of images every day marketing an image to us about who we need to be and how we need to see ourselves and how other people see us so he says yes generosity yes contentment yes simplicity declutter everything right hoarders no more and then you walk out and you open your you pick up your smartphone and you look at an ad that just came through your email about new shoes or a new piece of technology, or a new release from this company, that's updating the technology that you have now, you have gotta get it because you're the kind of person who always has, I didn't, the reason some of you are not content, not simple, and not generous, is not because you think those things are bad ideas, but because consumerism is so part of your identity that it feels like you're denying who you are to be content, to be simple, and to be generous. Second of all, there's another way in which it's completely upside down, and it's this. In an individualistic culture, conformity to external authority is absolutely upside down. Robert Bella was a social scientist in the 1980s in his contribution to a book called Habits of the Heart. He he coined a term called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism, and Trevin Wax who's a contributor to the Gospel Coalition blog, talks about expressive individualism in this way. He says, according to this way of thinking, the goal of life is to discover and express your unique sense of self, no matter what others may say or do to challenge your freedom of personality. The narrative arc of your life is finding your personal route to happiness by following your heart, it's expressing your true self, and then fighting whoever would oppose you, your society, your family, your past, or your church. See, individualism tells us that you, not, not as opposed to consumerism, you are what you buy. Individualism says you are what you feel. You are what your desires are. So you have to look deep inside yourself, discover Your identity, discover your meaning, discover your purpose, and then you gotta live that out regardless of the consequences that it has for you. It's expressive individualism. And listen, in our culture, we've been fed that narrative, that story, for so long that it sounds so right side up to us. It sounds so natural and normal that to say there's something wrong with that means that you're narrow minded and bigoted. See, the, 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 the media that we have consumed for so long has, has reinforced that story in our minds. That again, you go, what's to a fish? What's water? I don't know what water is. So everything that, that we're about to say about this is going to sound so counterintuitive. It's going to sound so upside down because we've swum in this water for so long. See, if the power in consumerism is perception, then the power in individualism is your feelings. Your deepest desires, nothing can trump those. Nothing can trump those. And the product that it produces is, listen, it's this. It's a soul collapsing pressure. It puts that on us because it erodes any sense of common or shared values within families, within churches, within communities, within societies. It erodes all those common and shared perceptions and values because what matters most is what I desire, what I want What I feel. A a, a lady by the name of Eva Altman. She's a Polish-born American writer who lives in London. Not sure how all that worked out for her. but, But in an interview recently on NPR... She spoke about this and I think she nails the diagnosis. I don't necessarily agree with her conclusions and treatment but she nails the diagnosis of individualism. She says that in a consumer culture with limitless numbers of choices, she says more than having choices just about what dishwasher we're going to buy, what car is going to sit in our driveway, what shoes are going to be on our shelves, she says more than that we have a choice in every area of our lives from career to partners to our own sexuality to the sexuality of our partners to how we want to have children etc, etc, etc we not just have choices about the things that we're going to purchase and buy but we have all these limitless numbers of choices about who we are going to discover inside and be she says we live in a very individualistic society so all of these choices have to be made individually and that's another Comment for another time. She says, this is a very demanding condition. We need to know what we want. We need to know what we think. We need to know what our values are. And we need to figure all of this out from within ourselves. Because there is no sort of general code or value system. Which tells us how to proceed about this very wide range of choice. We have to look inside. Find who we are. And then live out of that. Perhaps the greatest illustration I could think of this week and kind of thinking through how individualism, expressive individualism is commonplace in our culture is perhaps one of the most famous recent Disney productions called Frozen. Familiar with the movie? If you've got young kids, you've probably seen it countless times. You've probably lost track of how many times you've seen that little snowman waddling around and that reindeer, and all the little trolls, and the ice castle, and the monster, if I lost count. But listen, the, the lead, one of the lead characters in that movie, whose name is Elsa, right, she is the picture of expressive individualism within our culture, right? She's that strong female who has, who has fought all convention. Every other expectation that was placed upon her to find who she was and then live that out regardless of the relational shrapnel that it left in her wake. And so whenever she sings the song, I know you don't want to hear it because I don't either, like you, you wake up hearing it some days, don't you? It's just like it's ingrained in there. But when she sings the song, let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go, turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they are going to say. Let the storm rage on. All this storm in my life that has been, that has blown in because of my finding who I was and then trying to live out of that against all conventions and criticisms. Let that storm rage on because isolation, the cold... Never bothered me anyway. And then she goes on further to say, it's funny how some distance makes everything seem small and the fears that once controlled me can't get to me at all. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. And that is the mantra of expressive individualism. I look deep within, I discover who I am, and then I live out of that. And in a culture that has been so shaped by expressive individualism, when Jesus shows up and begins at the end of Matthew chapter 7 to teach as one who has what? Authority. It's completely counterintuitive and upside down. Completely upside down. Because what we've been taught all our lives, for many of us growing up, is that there are no limits, there are no boundaries. Look inside, find who you want to be, and go and be that person, regardless of the cost. In fact, that is the last heroic story in our culture. And it gets celebrated over and over and over again in literature, in movies, in music, and in the news. That is the story that is celebrated. In fact, some of you students in this room this morning, let me speak to you for a moment. Some of you students in this room, this is the water. Some of you are older adults. You, you remember a day when that was not quite the, the, the narrative of our culture. But some of you students, that's the only narrative you've ever known, the only one you've ever known. And so everything that I'm about to say about Jesus' authority in your life sounds completely wrong. It sounds absolutely wrong. Because what you've been told is look inside, find your desires, and then live for those. As opposed to let someone else externally have authority in your life that you would come under and conform to. But I want you to consider something with me. How do you know? How do you know, whether you're a student in this room this morning or not, how do you know which of your deepest desires you should live out and which of your deepest desires you should resist? If that's, if that's the way that you're going to live, how do you know which one to live out and which one to resist? Because listen, if you were, if you were born a thousand years ago in Northern Europe, okay? And you, you walked the, the, the hills and countryside of Northern Europe and you've looked deep within yourself, right? You looked in the mirror, looked deep within yourself and you found in yourself desires for aggression. To go out and plunder and pillage and kill. Your culture in that day would have said, do it. It was celebrated in a very violent culture. But listen, if you look deep within yourself today in Rockwall County, you look up in the morning, you look in the mirrors, you're getting ready for school and you find within you a deep desire for aggression to go out and pillar, plundage, and kill. One of three things is going to happen. Either you're going to resist that desire, you're going to go to therapy or Prison. Right? So don't you see every culture as it shifts and change, changes, the story that it's telling you about who you are and what to look for, those desires to live out, are going to change. A thousand years ago, there were different desires that were stamped with approval to live for and others that were stamped with disapproval to resist. And this culture, it's shifted. But listen, I want you to understand something. Students, adults, if you've been shaped by this narrative of expressive individualism, the, the, only, the only place the, the only place you can go, and one of the things that makes Jesus so counterintuitive is because his teaching doesn't change and shift like the shadows. It remains constant and steady so there's always a benchmark externally to look and say these are the desires that I should resist and these are the desires that I should cultivate it doesn't change from culture to culture and generation to generation they stay steady and constant and Jesus shows up and teaches as one who has authority in that culture and in this one as the king of all creation but that sounds so counterintuitive so much so that people would push back and say, well, right, Elsa says, here I stand. But didn't Luther say that 500 years ago? <laughs> here I stand. Here I stand. Whenever he took the 95 Theses and he nailed it to the door. In fact, some, of, some folks would say, some of my Roman Catholic friends who I grew up with in South Louisiana, a very French Catholic culture, they would say, your Protestant church wouldn't be here unless someone broke from convention and broke from the norms. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. When Elsa says here I stand, when Elsa says here I stand, she's saying here I stand based on my own internal I'm constrained by my internal desires. But when Luther 500 years ago this year said here I stand, I cannot recount. He was saying here I stand because he was constrained by something outside of himself. Something external to him. See, Jesus, the good life in Jesus' vision is upside down. And quickly as we close, the vision that Jesus has for life, the good life, is not only upside down, but it's inside out. It's inside out. Because Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that we will see as we unpack it together is this. Is that when Jesus teaches and instructs us. Jesus is not just layering a new level of morals for us in our lives. But Jesus is going deeper than that. And he's digging down to the heart. Because in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's what Jesus says, unless you are more righteous than the most righteous individuals on the face of the earth, you will never get into the kingdom. Now people in Jesus' day must have been going, man, that's never going to happen. And people in our day who look at all the regulations and rules that the scribes and Pharisees operated by, the 613 laws that they kind of bent their life to, You go, I can never, my righteousness can never exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And yet in the same book, writing later on, Matthew records Jesus as saying that the scribes and the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombs. They were like a plate and a saucer, who on the outside were clean, but inside were filthy they looked like polished marble on the outside that you would put at a headstone, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. Jesus is saying that your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees because it is not mere conformity to a new moral standard, but it is a change from the inside out. Jesus is going after the heart. Over and over again we're going to see in the Sermon of the Mount, he says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you, he's going after your heart and my heart. And one of the ways that Jesus changes us from the inside out is by not changing what we see. Listen, but changing how we see. A couple of months ago, my mom and dad bought um, my kids some binoculars. They love those kinds of things. So my kids are running around with the binoculars, you know, every once in a while they get them out and they look kind of out across this green belt across the street from our home, um, looking for their friends over there through the woods. Uh, and so, you know, all kinds of things. I'm not real sure what they're looking for. But they they like playing with the binoculars. But one day, my daughter, who's I'm sitting in the living room, she walks into the living room with the binoculars, and Sarah walks in and she's got the binoculars holding them up like this as she's walking around the house and saying, Daddy, I can't see anything. I can't see anything. Why can't I see through these binoculars? And I realized very quickly that what the problem was and diagnosed it and went up to her and said, well, baby, you're looking through the wrong side. She's like, everything looks small and far off. When I know it's right here. Well, the problem was she had them turned around backwards and she was walking around trying to look through the big side of the binoculars as opposed to the little one, which would magnify everything out there and bring it closer as opposed to she was taking everything that was close and making it look like it was way out there. And so I took the binoculars and I turned them around in her hands and she put them up to her eyes and she goes, ha, they work. And do you know, that is what God is graciously and gently doing in all our lives. For all who come under His gracious and good, His sovereign and saving and sanctifying, redempting and re- redemptive and renewing reign, everyone who says yes to Jesus over the course of our lives, God's taking those binoculars over. You ever find that over and over and over again? And He's turning them around so that He's not. Chi- we don't. We don't. Not that we don't see money anymore. That we don't see stuff anymore. That we don't see. Right, our desires anymore, but we're seeing them through different lenses because God is not changing what we see. He's changing how we see it. And whenever he begins to change how we see it, there's change that begins to take place from the inside out because we don't see our desires the same way anymore. We don't see money and stuff the same way anymore. We don't see anger and reconciliation the same way anymore. We don't see revenge and retaliation the same way any longer. God begins to change how we see. And his rule in our lives is one where every day, every month, every year. He's coming to us and saying, no, 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 no. You're seeing it, seeing it all wrong. Here. Let me turn the lenses around. Oh, there it is. There it is. You ever experienced that? Yeah Jesus ruled the good life in Jesus' vision is upside down, and the good life in Jesus' vision is inside out. And there are two things you've got to do with that. One, you've got to respond to his invitation. See, when Jesus teaches this sermon, he's surrounded by massive crowds and his disciples. With his disciples, he's instructing them with the crowds. They're overhearing that. There's a constant invitation of them to come under his lordship and leadership. Have you ever done that? Have you ever responded to Jesus' invitation? Maybe you've been in church for a very long time, all your life, in fact, but you've never crossed the line of faith. You've never said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna repent, right, from ruling and reigning my own life and I'm gonna come under Jesus' righteous and redemptive rule because I know he wants to renew all things in my life. He wants to turn everything on its head and he wants to do it from the inside out. Have you ever responded to his invitation? See, Jesus' invitation is not like an Evite. Evite. You ever gotten those in your email? If you're like me, like I get the Evite and I look at it and I go, hmm, I don't know. And it just sits there in the email for like the first week, the second week, the third week, all of a sudden the party's come and gone and I've never responded to the invitation. But Jesus' invitation is one that has to be responded to and you will respond to it in one of two ways. Either you will come under his saving rule or you will continue to live outside of it. One to your everlasting pleasure and the other to your everlasting peril. Have you responded to Jesus' invitation? And then, second of all, would you receive over these next 16 weeks, off and on, would you receive Jesus' instruction in your life? In order to do that, you've got to be here, you've got to be present, right? Have you ever noticed that it's different? To listen to a sermon when you're gathered with God's people as God's word is opened versus whenever you're doing laundry listening to a podcast it's a little bit different isn't it or you're driving down the street or you're out exercising you've got you know your favorite preacher in your ear and you're just running along it's different to sit with God's people gathered under God's word receiving his instruction rather than tuning into the podcast later so be here Make that a priority in your life over the course of this winter and spring to be present. Second of all, second of all, take what God is saying to you to receive in his instruction and begin to work it out with other people. And the way that we do that here at Redeemer is through life groups. And what, what my vision for our life groups would be, would be that in our life groups we would move from lecture to lab. You ever take chemistry or biology or something in, in high school or in college, and you always had the lecture portion, and then you had the lab portion, right? In the lecture portion, you received all the information. In the lab portion, you begin to take all that and apply it and work it out in the experiments, in the, in, in the study, in the research. You begin to apply what you knew. And you can be here all day long, every Sunday. And receive information and receive information and be called and compelled to take steps. But if you never walk into a small, accountable group of other believers who are encouraging you and challenging you. It's going to be much more difficult to take what you know and apply it. And so be present to receive his instruction and move from lecture to lab as you get among other people because Jesus is not just asking you to become a new kind of human but he's inviting you into a new kind of humanity in a people who are gathered together who would be salt and light in a decaying and dark world let's pray together Father this morning we ask that you would have your way with us as a church. They would use us for your glory. They would make your fame known. That we would continually celebrate Jesus and all that he has done. And over the course of this time that we spend working through the Sermon on the Mount, God, I pray that there would be some upside-downness about this church that develops and some inside-outness about this church that develops as we respond to your son's invitation as we receive his instruction. Father, I pray that this week as we move into the relaunching of life groups, I pray that there will be many people who take that step from lecture to lab and begin to develop relationships with people that are accountable and encouraging and challenging. that would help us, that you would use as a tool, instrument in your hand to change how we see so that our lives might look upside down in a culture that is so in need of salt and light. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.